You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on because this is the first property manager that we've got on The Elephant. We talked about all the mistakes investors can make from not renting at the right time to rent increases to how do you manage a bad tenant. If you've got a property or are going to invest in a property, you need to listen to this episode. I walked in after he put all this work into the property and I went, um, it's a dishwasher. And he went, oh, I didn't put one in. I said, well, we're trying to get $1,500 a week for this property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Lisa Inge, Principal of Property Management Specialists, Let's Rent. Let's Rent is an agency with a difference because they don't have a sales division. Their focus is 100% on their landlords and tenants. Lisa's committed to changing the face of property management, and this isn't limited to the way Let's Rent runs. She's also an active member of the REI New South Wales Property Management Chapter, where she contributes to industry-wide change. Her expert command of all things property makes her equipped to effectively manage any situation the portfolio can throw at her and her team. And she's enormously proud of the trademark friendliness that her team thrives on and is constantly on the lookout for ways to enhance service so Let's Rent always stays one step ahead of the rest of the industry. We haven't interviewed a property manager before on the podcast, so we can expect to discuss property investment on a whole new level here today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I just want to start on vacancy rates, actually. You know, there's a lot of talk around vacancy rates going up, vacancy rates going down. Should we really be just treating it as gospel and is there actually a lot more to it? Well, I think we should look at the stats first. Mm. (laughs) And uh, interestingly enough, Veronica and I were talking the other day uh, with regard to the vacancy rate in December because the figures just came out last week. And I was surprised. I was expecting vacancy rate to go up in, in inner Sydney a little bit because certainly we saw an increase in our own portfolio, but it went up by 20% in December to 3%. So that's very high for inner Sydney and middle Sydney went up to uh, 50, uh, sorry, up to 5.1%, which was a 45% increase from the month before. So that's pretty drastic. Now let's, let's just um, stop just for a minute. So vacancy rates are? When a property is actually vacant. So we don't classify a property as vacant if there is income still coming in on it. So we're showing properties while they're still tenanted. So at that point, it's it's not vacant. Mm. It, and if we bring on a property and it's vacant at that point in time, then we classify that as vacant. Right. And there's always got to be a little bit of churn. There's always going to be a normal amount of vacancy. Um, I think it's what's 1% or something is, is what is, what, there is some well, sort of figure there, isn't there? In, inner Sydney has really been tracking at about one8 to 2.2 for the last year or so. Um, 1.8 is is good. Uh, I'd say um, 
in terms of our portfolio, our average over that period has been um, about 1%. So we're significantly lower than the average. And that means that 1% of all property in your portfolio at any given time is actually available. Or empty. Empty mm. and not earning income. And so we'll yep. still classify it as vacant if it's that gap between two tenants when we do our figures so right. that so that it's actually true to um you know, true ah, to what we're saying. And so therefore you could have tenants vacated, a new lease has been signed, but that person hasn't moved in. No, the le- the new lease would not have been signed because we generally have uh about three days between tenancies. So that gives us time to do the vacate inspection, the ingoing inspection, and then to sign the lease because you can't sign a lease without the ingoing inspection. Uh Uh-huh. So there's always going to be a little bit of vacancy for every single property. So therefore there always has to be a vacancy rate of something. Yes, there there does. And the way in which you report your figures, so these, a bit like uh, auction clearance rates, like this is a figure that individual agents report into an... To the REI, that's correct. So the REI is is the tabulator of these stats. I'm just trying to get for our listeners, I know it might be a bit boring, sorry listeners, just, you know, I want to get clear on this myself. And so individual agents report these figures. And so if they aren't as clear on their reporting data, there can be some variance. Absolutely. Right. Okay, good. Do they have to report on it? No, it's a voluntary thing. I think it's really important that we report every month to the REI. So as an industry, we can gauge what the market overall is doing because otherwise the only measure we have is our own portfolio and if you like talking to other agents. Now, if every single agent that reports in a given month reports every month and they use the same methodology, then the stats are reliable. But if you have a situation where some agents will report only when they've got a big figure and not when they've got a small figure then, or vice versa, then that's not a reliable indicator, is it? Yes, that's true. But what I would say is, uh, as a member of the REI, that I know as a committee that every single person on the committee does put those figures in every single month. And I think if you are that type of person, you're not going to do it one month and then not Mm. do it another month because you're doing it for a reason and you're doing it so that the industry can have benefit as well as yourself. Because obviously if we're having conversations with clients about why we need to adjust a price, having a statistic like the vacancy rate is super important. I guess that when people are thinking about buying a property, they go, oh, um, okay, so I'm looking to invest in X suburb and they go, okay, well, you know, what's the vacancy rate? And they go, okay, well, it's 4%, right? And then they go, okay, that's pretty good. Let's say they think that's good, right? And then they stop there. But really, it shouldn't be stopping there, right? Absolutely not. Like, you know, are you buying a house or an apartment? Okay, we want to buy a house. Okay, so what's the vacancy rate of houses? Mm. Okay, well, it's 6%. Okay, wow, that's not good. Okay, and then what, you know, of houses that are three betters on main roads? That's 10%, you know? (laughs) So, like, vacant, it's very easy. We get hung up on these numbers, and I guess in, you know, with with vacancy rates, we can easily just go, okay, we want to, you know, in Balmain, vacancy rates is 1% or 2%. Let's just go buy Balmain. But I'm sure there'd be parts of even Balmain mm-hmm. or one-bedroom studios that are on Darling Street that, you know, a vacancy rate of them is probably 7%, let's call it. That's, you know, so- it's a really good thing to point out, Chris, because what we've actually seen, um, and I think you asked me this question the other day, Veronica, about um, the vacancy rate, it, you know, how is it split in mm. terms of houses, apartments, um, one-bed, two-bed, Etc. And I'm certainly seeing in the inner west, um, and when I say inner west, 
our core area really, which is Balmain, Roselle, um, Lilyfield. That in that section there, three bed properties around $1,000 a week are really struggling. Mm. So we're finding the markets a little bit soft between, and also in Annandale as well, um, between about 1000 and 1500 But as you get closer to the universities, that um, downward pressure on rents in that in that yep. sector is is significantly less because at this time of year we've got huge numbers of students looking for accom- accommodation. Are they you paying that re- much money? Yes. Wow. So they pay that much money, but they also have parties every week. So oh. I'm just joking. I'm, I'm generalising. <laughs> but I mean, you know, and that's the thing. You know, like if you get twelve hundred bucks a week and you get you know a young professional couple that you know. Ca- very house proud and they take care of things, etc. You know, or you get four uni students who are having parties. Like it's not equal, is it? It's not twelve hundred dollars a week. No. The rent you get is only really equal to the tenant you have, and both are valuable in their own way. Correct. So, because the t- the the group of students will pay more rent than the family. But there might be a cost. There might be damage. There oh, might absolutely. Be, um, you know, turnover, high wear and tear. Re- you know, mm. higher leasing fees. So you're not not to so, say you should never yeah. rent it to. But I guess someone might say, okay, with what you were saying there is that, um, you know, there's lower vacancy with a three-bed house near a university, so we should buy that. But what they might not be thinking through or what are the, actually an opportunity cost there, if the more uni students that are living in the area in the houses means there's less other families living in the area. So you may have less community. So, That's right. you know, I guess when, when people are investing, there's kind of, you've got to keep on going deeper and deeper with this. And, and you've got to look at what you're trying to achieve. Mm. So if you are going to buy a house in an area like Enmore, the reality is if it's a three or four bedroom house, you are likely to have students or young people sharing that property. Mm. So think about what type of property it is that you're purchasing yeah. and the sort of tenant that you're going to be attracting because our lovely client in Enmore who would love a family in his property is probably never going to get one because we've rented it out so many times and, you know, he will even drop the price in order to have a different type of tenant, but we've just never been able to achieve it. It's interesting though, right? Exactly. So that's an amazing investment tip, you know, buy the property for the tenant that you really want, you know, like Mm -hmm. if you get a, you know, three levels, bathroom downstairs, out the back, you know, family's going to be like, look, this is just too much effort to Correct. get their baby up and down the stairs. But mm-hmm. uni students are like, oh, we don't care if we save 50 bucks a week on the rent. Yep. I'm happy to go down the stairs. Like, yeah. So look at the demographics in the area when you're yeah. purchasing an investment. That's super important. So back to this cutting up the uh, the vacancy rate. So that's really important. I want to get to sort of inner ring and middle ring yes. too. But so, you know, what Chris was asking there about the actual, you know, slicing up in an individual suburb. So the figures come out. So vacancy rate, say Balmain for argument's sake, has got 2% vacancy rate. Mm. Does that include houses and apartments? Yes, it does. That's everything lumped yes. in. So in order for an investor to really fully understand a local area and what may or may not constitute a good investment, they really do need to go and pound the pavement themselves and talk to local property managers, right? I think that's a great idea because if you are looking to invest in that area, you're also going to see how the agents uh, show the property and what their follow-up is like as well. So I think I would definitely recommend that. A bit like when you're choosing a selling agent, go out there and pretend to be a buyer. Correct. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Do people do it? <laughs> Not very often. No. no. Like, that's the thing. That's too although, much effort. Although I have to say, I have to say that we've actually picked up quite a bit of new business because of our leasing team. And that might not come through to us straight away, but when those people who perhaps are rent investors are thinking about changing agents, uh, they might go, well, when we were renting, we had a great experience with Let's Rent, so let's give them a call. 
I'd like you mentioned there um, around price points that start to struggle to get renters, right? Like a thousand bucks a week, three betters. Yes, but can I clarify that? Because yep. above fifteen hundred is fine. Yeah, this is interesting. So this, and this is, moves around though, doesn't yes, it? it? Does. Yes, it does. It's something that I talk to clients around price, rental floors, and rental ceilings, right? So. You know, and, um, Mm. you know, can we, can you, I guess, explain how that works, right? Yes. um, And Mm -hmm. because I think it's really interesting for buyers to really understand because sometimes they just assume that they're going to, you know, they get a better property. They're always going to get more rent and Mm. sometimes you Mm. hit the ceiling. Correct. And so how does it work? Yeah, there is a ceiling. So I'll give you an example. Um, in every area, there there is a ceiling. And so if you have a really fantastic house in that area, it, there's a limit to what you can achieve, or even if it's super amazing. Mm. There's a house on Darling Street that um, another agency tried to rent, and I think they put it on for about $3,500 a week. That's way over the ceiling mm. in our area, <laughs> and it's not waterfront, yep. and it doesn't have um, a, a marina berth or anything like that. So it's it's... Yeah, there's no there's no landing pad. <laughs> so really, the the ceiling in Balmain is quite close to three thousand dollars a week, mm-hmm. but you really need to be waterfront to achieve that. Yeah. Um, and and the yield is crap. The yield you is know, rubbish. You're not going to get a, a waterfront mm-hmm. for under six million, for mm-hmm. instance. And so mm-hmm. you're you're talking about two percent, you know, gross yields off the map. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. not good investments for renting out. No, <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> and the reason for that is that after 3000 the person who wants to pay $3,000 a week rent starts thinking, well, why don't we just go live in Mossman you know, for three well, and a half or something, like, something You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, they would still go and rent somewhere, but they just would swap suburbs. Yeah, you know? I think that, that the pe- people who live in areas for different reasons. So someone who is living in um, Bellevue Hill uh, or Vaucluse is highly unlikely to come to Balmain. Someone who's living in Paddington might come to Balmain, um, but there's there's not a lot of crossover of that. I just think you you either like where you live, mm. um, or you choose where you live based on the amenity that you you're looking for. And it's definitely a Sydney thing in particular that you know that we're very parochial in terms of our bridges and our main roads that we yes. will not cross. Mm. Um, but tenants at that level, I don't want to talk too, too much about it because really I think. Most landlords of that type of property uh, probably didn't buy that property as an investment. They might correct. be moving overseas themselves or, you know, there's different reasons why they would put that on the market, correct? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely correct. So in, in terms of, um, you know, from a, so an investor point of view of saying, right, we want to actually help investors buy a good property that will rent well and that's not your primary goal, of course, when you're buying an investment property, that's to help you pay for the thing while it grows in value. Mm. Um you know, this understanding of, of diving into an individual market and understanding the drivers within one suburb and that they will differ from suburb to suburb you and that to, there's cyclical yeah. nature to this. Yes. And also that that ceiling and, and the floor and the ceiling are very important concepts, but also that they will move around and it's a bit very rubbery, isn't it? Uh, I think the floor and the ceiling don't move that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it comes back to what you were saying about Sydney siders liking where they live. So there's not a lot of movement from, you know, east to west and west to east, etc. Um, so uh, I, I think that when you look at a suburb and you're, you're looking at the return, you're, you're likely to be in, in the middle range um, to achieve your best yield. So um, if you look at the demographics of the suburb, that's going to give you a really good idea of what types of properties will be most in demand. And when you say the middle range, you mean the middle price range? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I think about it is like, you know, if someone, if a young couple, for example, are thinking about renting, they'll go, okay, well, we'll go and rent a nice studio. But then when they get to about 450 bucks a week rent, they say, well, if we're going to spend that much, why don't we just get a one better? Mm-hmm. You know, because then we can have a separate bedroom to the lounge room. We don't have to live on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And then when it gets to maybe, I don't know, 650 a week, you know, that couple are saying, well, if we're going to pay 650 on a one better, why don't we just get a two better, right? And, you know, even if it's a beautiful one better, they think, well, you know, we get some friends come stay. It'd be better to have a second bedroom. And then once you get to like, you know, maybe 900 bucks a week rent, you know, they say, well, why don't we get a little terrace? That's very true. And and generally, you know, because then we can have a little dog or we can have a little backyard. And Mm. so what happens is when people are investing, they go, well, you know, I'll go and get an apartment. And they go, well, even if you get that beautiful apartment, you know, you, you, even if it's, you know, amazing, it hits this cap. And so even if you're spending, you know, let's say 1.1 million for it and you get, you go and pay 1.4 million for a beautiful two bedroom apartment, you think, well, I should get even more rent. Well, you won't. No, you and won't. so mm. you've got to, when you, I guess, investing, be careful that you're getting a decent yield for still getting a good property, but you don't treat it as the number one goal, mm. but you just got to always be conscious that pay more money doesn't mean you're always going to get rent. No, that's right. You want to be in the fattest sector of the market for that area. Yeah. Think of yeah. a bell curve. Yeah. The big yeah. chunky bit in the middle. The chunky bit in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Which is one reason, I guess, why apartments we've used don't give that greater yield. Because you know, tenants yes. aren't necessarily paying for the view. They pay a little bit for it, but yeah. at the end of the day, what they're paying for is the, the space. From a capital size. perspective, it's far more expensive to pay for the view, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So back to the vacancy rate. Okay. So we've, we've established that it... Um, you know, they're top. It's a top line stat for each suburb, yeah. and it's an I- important indicator because it sort of reflects, I guess, what's happening to the market. But like you said, we're recording this at the end of January. The figures for December just came out, so they're a month in arrears. Yes. So therefore, always looking behind, you know, in revision mirror once again, but also that things could have changed. So on the ground, mm. you knew what was happening in December, sure. obviously in your patch. Yeah. Now you know what's happening in January. The actual official uh, rates won't come out until the end of next month. And so it could have changed again, right? Well, we are, we will do our stats at the end of this month, so we'll know what they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and certainly I would expect less vacancy this month compared to last month. Mm. And so tell, talk us through some of that seasonality. Uh, I think there's, well, there's a number of factors that um, cause people to move in January, February. Um relocations, corporate relocations, um, change of schools um, or starting school. Um, Psychologically, people get to Christmas um, and they start searching for properties (laughs) on Christmas Day. (laughs) So we get huge inquiry between Christmas and New Year. Even though you're closed. Yeah. Because like every real estate agent closes unless they're in the coastal area. Well, can I tell you that this is actually a, a, a very interesting subject that you just brought up because mm. we only close between Christmas and New Year. Right. We started, uh, we opened on the 2nd of January, we did our first inspections on the 2nd of January because we'd built up all this inquiry between mm. Christmas and New Year. Those first two inspections we did, we had over 30 groups through those two properties, wow. a higher offer on one of them. Now we couldn't check that tenant's references because their agent wasn't open till the following Thursday. So they closed for another week. Mm. So they've got, they've got vacant properties for sure. Mm. So really important question to ask your property managers, how long they close for Christmas? Because, because there were, there's, you know, we take the view that, 
Um, it is better to close between Christmas and New Year rather than show properties because we can come into the new year with a lot of inquiry and big numbers through the opens and get them leased quickly. Have you done the numbers around if there's more properties for actual rent at Christmas though? Like, you know, there might be, you know, if, mm. ideally I could you go, oh, there's all these renters at Christmas. Let's definitely need to rent our property out at Christmas because we'll get the best price. But, <laughs> you know, you do that and then everyone else is renting their property because everyone else has got the same strategy and then demand and supply pushes you back to where you were anyway <laughs> and all that effort was pretty pointless. Have you actually seen that there's a lot more people trying to rent their properties at Christmas to match that demand? Um, well, we, we do push our clients in that direction. So, for example, if we had a tenancy commencing in December, we would not finish it in December. We'd finish it at the end of January the following year so that we can pick up a good market uh, in the January to release the property and not have the pressure of trying to find a tenant just before Christmas. So we definitely structure our leases in that way. I'm not really sure that other agents do that to to much extent, Um, but certainly the volume of uh, stock this January uh, in terms of numbers of tenants as well as properties is very high. Okay, so why do you think the vacancy rate rose so steeply in December? Oh, I wish I could answer that, Veronica. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think I think there was... Month, the danger is in is December. Is that normal in December? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of go back to com- a couple of the issues that we saw. One of them was that properties weren't selling. So there was more stock coming onto the rental market that had not sold because owners weren't willing to accept perhaps the price they were offered or right. didn't, didn't receive an offer. So it's new stock coming into the rental market. Exactly. Mm. So we've never seen that before. Well, I say that never. We've, we saw a GFC. That was the only other time I've ever seen that happen where mm. stock, stock was not selling and therefore it came onto the rental market. So that added a, a little bit of stock. Um, but the other thing was that there were le- a lot less people around in December, uh, which obviously exacerbates that problem. Um, mm. So I think that's the main reason why it did go up. I mean, I guess we'll figure out whether that was a trend or whether it wasn't, Absolutely. I guess, in six months' time. But mm. I mean, yeah, it's probably it's probably a danger zone anytime. It's not really. Of course, you it is. I mean, mm. if you have an investor property and your your tenants are leaving on the fourteenth of December, you'd be like, "This is not going to be good." Is it's it? not I'm great. Four mu- four weeks of rent, maybe potentially. Mm. Is there any other danger zones during the year that you yes. think that are should never go near? Easter. <laughs> Easter. All right. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Avoid it like the plague. <laughs> but it's a good time to move, though, isn't it? Uh, four days off. People don't tend to move around that time. There's school holidays, there's Easter itself, and uh, I think people tend to, to treat that as a holiday period rather than a moving period. Mm. Okay. So it te- it, if you're pricing a property and Easter is coming up, you need to be very careful. Any others? Oh, look, it's quieter in the winter time than it is at this time of year. This is the busiest time of year generally. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, in the winter months, it tends to be a bit softer, particularly if you're um, looking at higher priced properties. And so new property, like do people love them, you know, renters? Do they, you know, get excited? (laughs) Um, You know, do you think you pay premium for new property over like existing? Well, I guess it depends where it is and how much of it there is. So if there's an oversupply, no, um, it's not a great place to buy an investment. Um, There's a lot of, uh, well, as I said, the vacancy rate in middle Sydney went up and Pretty sure that's because of an oversupply of new new stock. Um, I think it depends on the area as well. Um, for example, um, there's been a lot of development in in Bondi in the last uh, twelve months or so as well, and um, certainly 
the demographic in that area loved the new stock in comparison to the old stock. So the old stock actually suffered quite a lot as a result of the, the new new stock coming on board. And how long does it take for that new stock to get absorbed into the general marketplace and things to go back to mm. normal? Well, it depends how much of it there is. Mm. And in that particular example, it took about four months. Right. Have you had properties to rent in, say, places like Roseborough, Alexandria or... Yes. Yep. And mm-hmm. how have you found that rental experience to, say, quality properties? Have you had problems, say, more problems renting properties like that? Uh, in, in new properties in those areas? Yeah, like new apartments. Yeah, so we don't tend to do that new stuff in, um, you know, around Zetland and Rosebury, yeah. but we tend to do more established stock in, say, Alexandria, for example, and the market's very good in that area. Yeah, so the established stock, no problems, if it's a nice warehouse conversion or if it's oh, You can nice... always rent a warehouse conversion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But a new That's apartment... That's back to scarcity. Yeah. So let's say I come to you, I'm a new customer, I yeah. say I've got an apartment in Zetland in a nice new development that was new, but it's now mm. 10 years old and you know, yeah, that, it's got a nice little barbecue area and things like that. Mm. Would you take me on as a customer? Well, I would, but I'd, I'd, I'd be, I'm aware that that sort of stock can be difficult to rent. And I know that there's been downward pressure on prices in that area because we've had people inquiring with us. So um, I'd just be upfront with you and, and say that because if you're coming from another agency, for example, because that agent hasn't been able to rent the property, then it's likely to be price. Yeah, because I mean, I think if you type in Zetland or Rosebury or, and then, you know, not every one of our listeners is in Sydney, but this is the apartment heaven near yes. the airport where mm. there's thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of apartments. Yeah. But if you type in one of those, you know, suburbs or even a number of suburbs would get even better result. Mm. You just see that there's, you know, actually thousands. A lot of new stock. That are all exactly the same yep. for this rent. And it's really a, it's a race to the bottom really, isn't it? If you yep. want to get your property picked, you basically have to take a low price because you know, uh, renters have zero, like so many options. And Co- then, correct. you know, in those scenarios as a property manager, you've got one offer, um, you know, and you get bad references or the, you do you do reference checks. You mm. know, I know you would, but do you think that the industry does? No, I don't. Uh, we, we do. And we will sometimes miss out on uh, tenants because we haven't been able to uh, check the references quickly enough and the other agents already approved them and uh, it's 9.30 oh, on yeah. a Monday morning. Well, if we haven't been able to check it by 9.30, then we don't believe that the <laughs> other agents checked it by 9.30. And and uh, it, there's uh, often times we will be exiting a tenant and we won't receive a reference check on them. And that's, mm. I mean, if you've got a property <laughs> for rent and you're using mm. a property manager, like... You know, like just like you're hiring someone for a job, right? And the recruiter's saying to you, oh, we'll do the reference checks. Like make sure they've done the reference checks, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, because yeah. and, and to see them and to check that out because, you know, there's generally they're not really done, you know? They're not. And, you know, there's reference checking and there's reference checking. So if you're asking yes and no questions, um, it's pretty easy to tick those boxes. But it, you, what you're trying to do when you're doing reference checking is find out as much information about that person as you possibly can because you're developing a picture. Mm. So it's not just how much do they earn, you know, have, how long have they been there. We ask the employer if they would make a good tenant. And it's always very interesting to hear what they say because when you, when you see a, a reference checking that I consider to be good, 
you'll see a pattern in that reference checking and the, the employer will say something similar to the previous agent who will say something similar to the personal referee. Uh, we also do LinkedIn checks, Instagram checks, Facebook checks. And the biggest thing that we're looking for um, it, when we're doing those Facebook and Instagram checks is pets because we don't want <laughs> someone to move into a property oh, with a pet, and yet and people find out with later. A lovely dog, they can't help themselves. They're always posting always their snapping do- it, <laughs> always. Oh, and if I they've got it. if they've got a cat, yeah. they're always snapping it. So oh, you, so funny. Mm-hmm. But is the pet is, is the pet issue overdone though? You know, is the pet is it like? It's, um, a, uh, it's about honesty, Chris. Mm. Yeah. You yeah. know, if someone's going to lie to me on an application, well, what else are they going to do? But also the. the you know, putting yourself in the tenant's shoes, you know, they, you know, are good people. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Got good jobs. Got a great, you know, they want to take care of the place. They're a great applicant. And but ha- as soon as they put tenant, they put they've got a little dog or a cat. You mean if they put they've got a great Dane? Well, not a great Dane. They <laughs> but know you know what I'm saying? Great, like you know, you don't you... see many great Danes in Sydney. But, you know, like. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, we had one recently. <laughs> uh, you know, you just find that, you know, a lot of there's discrimination. And, you know, and there is. end of the day, it's not nice to be discriminated against. And, you know, and there's a, usually a cat and mouse game, excuse the pun, where, um, you know, the, the tenant feels like they have to lie and they feel like they have to. If they love the place and they've, you know, they really want the place, they're at this really crossroads. Because mm-hmm. that's Although gonna... I've got an idea here for tenants that are like that. If Go they... to Rosebury or Zetland because <laughs> they can't rent those places out. They will take someone with a dog or a cat. But Pets I think are, na- but it's animals a, it's, are a big part of people's world. They, and that, they and... are, but I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't approve animals by any stretch. Mm. I think people who are pet owners, who are responsible pet owners, are absolutely fantastic tenants and they tend to stay longer. Like, so some I'm of not... my best tenants have had absolutely. Um, animals. So I'm not. Se- I'm not selecting them, them out. What I'm saying is, it's important to be honest because, you know, we're here to do a job. It's a mutually beneficial relationship between the tenant and the landlord. So let's start it off on the right foot. And I personally recommend tenants with animals mm-hmm. if their if their application is good because if they've got a great application and they have a small dog or a cat, I don't see that that's going to change them being a good applicant. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So, what would you recommend to a Pet owner who's going to rent, mm-hmm. you know, around their pets because it's no one thing just saying I've got a cat or I've got a dog. Oh, um, we love the pets, CB. yeah. But I mean, I think I kind of feel like you've kind of got to over take the photo of the cat or photo, and you got to like write a, a reference check for that cat, you know, because I feel like you know there is a lot of discrimination. Do you think there is in in a landlord world where people say, oh, what sort of tenant do you want? Well, I want they've got to have a job and no pet. Yes. No, is that you know? Well, that's likely because they've had a bad experience before, mm. or so, they just think they should. You know, that, that idea that, oh, well, that's what you should be instead of actually thinking about it, which is what we do a lot in life. When you, uh, what, that they should say no pets? Yeah. Oh, well, we, co- we coach our clients through that. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very clear with clients that it's not about whether they have a pet or not a pet. It's about whether they are a good application applicant mm. who will in turn make a good tenant. That's mm. what it's about. It's not about pet, no pet. Yeah, but but what you're saying, your point is that if they say they don't have a pet and then it's clearly obvious you do because yeah. it's, it's not all over Facebook to, and Instagram. It's not go well. But, I mean, a lot of pet owners will actually pay premium, right? They pay for the cat food, they pay for the dog food, they pay for everything else for the pet. They've got to pay an extra 50 bucks a week rent, rent in a nice place. They definitely would as well. So I think you, you kind of, you know, I think a lot of landlords would probably say, oh, no pets, I'd, you know, but hang on a sec, you might be 
good tenant, yeah. stay longer, and then may pay more money. That they do tend yeah. to pay more rent, which yeah. I personally don't think is fair. Um, but unfortunately, the tenants' union um, lobbied the government to change the bond amount that we could charge mm-hmm. a few years ago. I think it was about four years ago. So we can now only charge a maximum of four weeks bond. In Prior to that, we were able to negotiate an additional bond for the pet. We used to call it a pet bond. Pet bond, right. And so that gave owners more comfort in renting to uh, tenants with pets. And then they get that extra bond back at the end, right? But if they have to pay a premium, that just goes into the landlord's pocket. Mm. Yep. And unfortunately, that change of legislation has had that effect. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's trying to remove discrimination, I guess, and, you know. But it's just if, changed if you, it. If you, yeah, if you change the rules a little bit, you know, if there's, you know, if you if you leave it in the grey, then you know, unfortunately, you know, I'm sure there's you know, people who said, well, if you can't move in with a pet unless you've got a two thousand dollar bond, and you know, the person say, well, I'm not going to pay that. Yeah, so. but I guess why why do you call it discrimination? If you're saying, look, I've got a dog, and we all know there's a risk with dogs that you know that might scratch the buggery out of a door or something, and so therefore, yeah, you can have a pet, no problems with that. There is a pet bond. Um, and if there's no damage, you get that back at the end, just like your own bond. Why is that discrimination? There was no set rules around that. Yeah. It, it was, there, there, there were parameters that were used in the market. Hmm. And I don't think landlords generally went over the top with that. Um, for example, we would um, charge an extra two weeks in bond. Um, if you think about that type of damage, uh, Veronica, the cost to repair that type of damage is very high. Yeah. Um, and Or repolishing mm, your floors because, you know, they scratched it from running through the house or whatever. And mm. um, Or the cat's it's, weed in, in the carpet and you cannot get that out. Mm. You have to replace the carpet. That's you know? right. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so the, those, those potential damages costs are significantly higher than they would be with an ordinary tenancy without a pet. Yeah, I know you're pretty biased. You would be because it's you know you've got your own property management business, and I get it. <laughs> um, but what do you, what's your thoughts on you know you buy an investment property, right? And you buy it through whatever agency. Uh, at that point in time, you've gone through a stressful buying process. You finally get it settled. You get the keys. Well, even before that, you start thinking about trying to rent it out. Mm-hmm. And a common mistake or thing that people do is they'll just use it to the agency that they bought it from. Correct. What's your thoughts on that? And do you think you get the best result? Well, yeah, I'm going to say no, aren't I? <laughs> Can you explain why though? Like, because I think it's yeah. it's a common mistake that we just make because you know it's just easy. It's easy. It's easy, right? Because they've already got the keys, so then they can carry on and find the tenant. But because you had a great experience with the sales agent, doesn't mean that they have a great property management division. So you need to do your research. You need to talk to the property manager and start that process as soon as you exchange contracts. Because even by calling a number of property management uh, companies or agencies, um, you're going to get information about, you know, what they charge, what their services are, look at their Google reviews. I think Google reviews are great because they're, they're a very, very honest way for um, the agency to present themselves. So um, look at any other reviews you can as well and, and you, speak to other people you know. Can you get the keys then if you, <clears throat> without pre-settlement, if an agent's hiring, you know, if we, if we're, as this actually happened this week, um, which I found quite interesting because this particular client was referred to us and they contacted me, um, I think very early in the new year and just via email and I had a chat with the owner and they had purchased the property through another agent and had said to me that they were talking to that agency as well. But because they were referred to us, 
they they seemed to be very much more interested in dealing with us. And then when I actually met the client at the property, which was after ex, uh, after settlement, he handed me the keys at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were talking about the rental value, and obviously I hadn't seen the property before, and I'd given them a, a guide. And I said, oh, I explained to him what I thought, and I said, what did the selling agency tell you? And he said, nothing. Mm. <laughs> I went, well, I mean, isn't that sort of 101 p.m.? They knew that the property was being purchased to to for uh, to a, to put a DA on it and in future live in the property. They they knew that the purchaser was not going to live in it, but they didn't bother having a conversation about how they were going to rent it out. So, if you're experiencing that, then clearly the agency is not interested in renting the property out, and you should go elsewhere. But we had that property online within 24 hours of it settling. <laughs> That's funny, actually, because. There's so many different ways that agents deal with this. Um, some are interested, some aren't. Clearly this Absolutely. person wasn't. There's also certain agencies where there's a there's a real fostering of of collaboration between property management and sales arms mm. and there are those that aren't. You can go the other extreme. We get so much pressure put on you when you buy a property to rent through their property management That's side right. and then you've got that extreme yeah. where you get nothing. It's just a vacuum. Mm. Um, and I think too, uh, certainly there's – there's not, it's not often that we rent through the agency we buy through. Sometimes there are conveniences around that, sometimes. I agree with that, Veronica. I think if you can get access prior to settlement, then it's, it is an advantage, but the campaign still has to be run well. And um, that actually happened to a client of ours when he said to me, look, we've purchased this property, we need to rent it out, but, you know, I need to use the agent who I purchased through because I'm getting access prior to settlement. And they were promising that they had a tenant, they had a tenant. Anyway, nothing happened. <laughs> so he said, can you just do it for me, please? Because they were they were not having honest conversations with him about what they were doing. And um, he was just finding that, you know, we already had a relationship. So he felt that the, and we did get access prior to settlement as well, which was, which was great. So that property uh, settled on Friday and we had the tenant starting yesterday. And so that, that's, that's a good tip as well. So don't just assume that you're not going to get access if correct. you use a different yep. property manager. Mm. I mean, do you use it as a negotiation tool as part of the purchase? Look, you know, we'll, you know, we'll give you 900 plus. We'll give you the, you know, a bit of I a. I really a avoid that. I really avoid it. Um, in fact, we would never ever offer that as a negotiation ploy ever. Um, it has been offered to us. Yeah. By selling agents, oh well, you know, if you give it to us, we'll we'll squeeze our owner harder, and I, th- I find that abhorrent. Uh, to get know, access prior. Well, no, no, not not that so much. It's more the fact is they're offering us something. We're not actually their client. Mm. You know, their vendor is their client, not us. You know, and I and I find it. You know, my skin crawls actually whenever I am offered something like that by an agent. It's not often it happens, but it does every now and then. Um, you know, I feel like you know what you are I meant not. To I'm here representing our client. You know, you don't need to be favouring us. You know, we'll get our job done. I actually want mm. to feel like I'm dealing with a professional who's got their best interests at heart. So their their client's best interests at heart. So yeah. But do you more, think your, your uh, other buyers agents out there would use that as a tactic to negotiate with a real estate agent? Or oh, look, they might. Mm. I, I, look, I think the gain from it is really minuscule in the whole scheme of things. So I, I, I would never look at that as being. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. 
Uh, I, mean, I guess the other thing you can also do, Chris, is um, which I know, Veronica, you've done before, is um, get permission to use the sales photos mm, yeah. for the rental campaign. And that means you can start the rental campaign, let's say a week before the property settles. So you've already built inquiry up by the time you have your first inspection. So and that can be used in your negotiation. So mm. as part of your actual offer, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I guess it's just the selling agents, right? They've got KPIs, they've got business meetings, they've got team meetings that, you know, they get questioned on, you know, how many properties did you sell last month? And how many are we still managing? Zero mate, you need to start figuring that out. And, you know, they've got KPIs and, you know, I guess as a negotiation tactic, you know, for some buyers, it might be, you know, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's probably just the reality where unfortunately some agents aren't thinking things logically and they're probably going to prefer one buyer sometimes. Yeah. I mean, look, there's no doubt that from that point of view, if you feel it's going to give you an advantage and I guess I should never say that we've never done it. Maybe we have done it just on a case-by-case basis. But but what I like to do is keep those two negotiations very, very distinctly separate. I don't want to muddy the waters. I want to keep a clear focus on getting this property across the line at the right deal for my clients. Once you start treading into that water, you start veering into a completely different type of negotiation with that agent and I just – it doesn't feel right mm. to me personally. Um but there have been times I get, there have been times we've stuck with um, the property manager of the agency that's selling the property there and and it's it's a very much case by case basis it's never ever ever just purely because it's easier sometimes it might be that the property's only going to be rented out for a fairly short period of time and that is easier and it is worthwhile and if they're a decent property manager that that is the simplest way to do it um, you know there's no point going through the whole disruption of different managing agencies and then waiting and blah 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 you know let, so yeah, it's case by case. And I think um, it's important though that that um, investors don't think short term. They don't sort of start panicking about having it vacant for a week or two yeah. until you get a tenant in because I just think the cost of that really amortises over a whole period of time mm. when you've actually got a bad agent on it and potentially a bad tenant. That comes back to that reference checking again, Chris. Yeah, and I think the other mm. thing I've, you know, it's just a challenge the pad is when, you know, you have used the agent that you purchased the property from uh, and they're useless you know, because of, you know, that's not their focus. Their mm. focus, they're a selling agent and they want to do sales and they've got a property management division, but, you know, it's staffed potentially with people just coming into the new industry. The turnover rate's much higher. You know, it's not, uh, It's they've got too many properties, not enough staff. Mm. You know, there's lots of challenges with property management just to keep it running efficiently. You need to be a good operator. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, sometimes it's not. And if they haven't done a great, you know, uh, I guess basically when someone moves in, what's that inspection called? Ingoing inspection. Ingoing inspection. <laughs> when they leave and you want to swap to another property manager, do issues come when there is damage to the property or it's not kept in the same condition around bonds and things like that? So, yes. you know, and how do you deal with that? So when should you swap an agent? Like, should you swap an agent? You know, how do you get out of a bad agent? You just send them an email. And you CC your new agent and you say, we've decided to change agencies. We're giving you notice mm. that we're terminating our arrangement. Um, there's a notice period, which is 30, usually 30 or 60 days. Uh, and then you just leave it to your new agent to handle the changeover. The worst time to change agents is when your property is about to become vacant or your tenancy is about to change over because of that notice period. Mm. Um, now, we often pay out the notice period simply to get the relationship going 
as quickly as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's very beneficial to do that for, for us and for the client because there's usually issues that need to be sorted out. So it gives us um, the opportunity to start working on it straight away because if you're changing agents, there's a reason for that, right? Mm-hmm. So don't, if, you, if you're unhappy with the letting process and, and the way that they've put the new tenant into the property, then you should really start thinking about it at that point in time. But yeah, so and you made an interesting point there. The worst time you should swap agents is just about when your lease is running up. But that's Correct. when, you know, investors mm. would think that's the best time to swap agents, right? So, yes. you know, the best mm. time to swap an agent is when your lease is running out, right? But you're saying right. that's the worst time. Why is that? Because if you have a 30-day notice period, for example, then your, your tenant's vacating in, let's say, two weeks. Um, and you've just found out that that's happening you're giving the agent 30 days notice. If they stay on that property for the 30 days, which right. they have the legal right to do, mm. in other words, they don't release you from the 30-day notice, then do you really think they're going to do a great job finding you a new tenant? Well, yeah, okay. Or cool. doing the ingoing inspection report, which is so crucial. It makes sense. So then you're going to have literally, you know, either be paying them just two fees, two weeks fees just unnecessarily, yeah. um, you know, to basically buy the rights off them, you know, I guess. Well, what, six weeks or eight weeks before it finishes, that wouldn't have be a problem. But would you still recommend someone swap agents I think, two months uh, I, before? Yeah, I think that's about the earliest you would you would do it because yep. when we're renting properties, um, we're, we're looking at our lease expiries all the time. So we're working on, at the moment, leases that are expiring in March and April because we want to know what's happening with those tenancies. So it's very important that um, your you understand if the tenant is staying or if the tenant is going. So if you do it two months before, that's probably about the the um, the closest you would do it because that gives you enough time to do the changeover, mm. talk to the tenant and determine whether or not that tenant is staying or whether you're putting it on the market to, to release. So you want to get it on the market at least four weeks before it expires yeah, or the tenant vacates. Yeah, or whatever you Absolutely. need to do. Absolutely, yeah. yep. And if there has been damage in that property while that person has rented property mm. and you want to take over the property and they want to stay living in the property, when does that damage have its D-day where mm. they have to pay for those out of their bond? Is it to the end of the lease, but then there could be further damage? Yes. Like how do you figure it depends, out? It depends what the damage is. Yeah. Um, but for example, when you're doing a routine inspection, you're, it's not a vacate inspection. So you're not going through the property with a fine tooth to tooth comb to determine if there's any damage because it's impossible. It's, it's occupied. Um, a good example of that might be um, a, a chip in the bench top. So when you're doing a vacate inspection, you run your hand along the edge of the, the bench top to see if there's any chips because sometimes they're quite hard to see. And, and then you refer to the condition report. That's when you're doing a vacate inspection. But mm. if the tenant has chipped the bench top during the tenancy, it's not a repair that I would insist that they do during the tenancy mm. because more damage could occur and it's quite expensive to get those chips fixed. But if, for example, the tenant has broken a glass door or something like that, then yes, that must be fixed immediately. Mind you, though, if you're inheriting a property from another property manager then you're reliant very much on their ingoing inspection which report, is, aren't you? Which is really bad. I mm. hate those situations because they, they they inevitably are, I mean, a lot of the time if you're coming from a poor agency, it's not signed by the tenant. So if yep. it's not signed by the tenant, <laughs> then you've got bucklies of getting anything from the tenant. Wow. So, so the, the bond means nothing. So can you start from because scratch you, at that point? Do you say, right, I'm going to, you can't really do an ingoing, can you? Because nope. basically nope. the place is not vacant. No. 
You can only do an ingoing inspection when the property is vacant. The condition of the property when we take over might be different to what it was when the tenant moved in. So it's about how you manage that situation. So it's important that we book a routine inspection immediately. We go and inspect the property, report back to the client, give them an idea of what the problems in the tenancy might be, uh, and then negotiate with the tenant about how we resolve those things. And that develops the relationship with the tenant so that hopefully if there's been a difficult relationship with the previous agent that we've we fixed that situation. We're there to help them. I mean, often it's about repairs not being done mm-hmm. or repairs being done poorly. Um, it's it's not usually not usually because of the tenant. Mm. And and it, the the most likely scenario I can think of is if the tenant is in arrears. That might be the only one where um, you know you find that you've got to step in and sort that problem out. Yeah, I find the arrears things quite interesting though because you know tenants. And it's pretty easy to find out online your rights as tenants and yes. you can pretty easy figure out that you're very hard to get rid of um, because um, what's <laughs> Un- the unless, truth? Unless you're behind in rent. Well, yeah, <laughs> but then you can always play the game. And Not anymore. Well, if you're in arrears mm-hmm. and then you have a, how, many, how many days is it in arrears when you can get given a notice? Fifteen. Fifteen days. You get given that notice, mm-hmm. right, and then if you then pay that rent up to date – you then cannot be kicked out? Yes, you can. Has that been changed? Yes, it has. When did that change? I'm very happy about that, by the way. <laughs> because you're recently? right. People used to, oh, I think it was about two, three years ago now. Right. Yeah. Victoria, it's not like that though. Oh, okay. So Victoria might be different. But yeah, yes, okay. tenants did used to play that game. But on earth would you? Why on earth would you want to play that game when people love the agent is hassling, <laughs> hassling you mm. to pay the rent all the time? So um, in, in New South Wales, on the 15th day, what we can do now is issue the termination and apply for tribunal at the same time. Wow, right. Okay. That's so good. it doesn't mean that we can evict a tenant because they were late with their rent once. But obviously, if we get to tribunal and they're 28, 29 days at that point in time, then it's likely that you are going to be going for an eviction. So if the tenant does pay what they owe and pays the rent in advance as they should according to the lease, yep. then it's unlikely an agent would go for an eviction. But what they would do is go for a specific performance order and a specific performance order requires the tenant to abide by the lease by paying their rent on time. So if they're a serial late payer, let's say that specific performance order lasts for three months or six months, however mm. however much you can get from the, the tribunal member, then you can go back to tribunal on that same uh, application number uh, and start that process of evicting the tenant because of uh, consistent late payment of rent. Yeah, and I think this what happens there is sometimes that you get to the tribunal and they say, right, how many days in arrears are you? Well, no, it's fully paid up. And then the, the person at the you know tribunal is saying, well, we can't really evict you because you yes. paid your rent up to time and you're actually in arrears and it's not really. And so even though they've had this, you know, months of being late and things like that, you know, they can then get let off and then it goes back to the cycle. And, yeah, well, the, um, the legislation is much stronger in, yeah. in, in terms of the, the benefit or the protection of the landlord now because yeah. it really is quite clear that you can evict a tenant for consistently paying late. Yeah, okay, because yeah. I, I know it's definitely like that in Victoria where, yeah, um, yeah the le- the tenant can just literally keep on paying up, you know, and so, you know, and you're right, why would you do that as mm. a tenant? But, you know, like damage is one thing, but paying rent on time is probably the other thing you want. Mm. And what it can do is your other point was, you know, basically 
bring a whole negative emotion to property ownership, right? So what should yeah. be a good a good idea for you and your family and your future and you go and buy an investment property, as long as you buy well, which we always bang on about on this podcast, mm-hmm. but as long as you buy well and you've done that right, the number one thing you now need to do is just make sure you get a good tenant and keep them in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where, you know, if you're not, not picking a property management, you could then sour your whole emotion around this. And even though it's a great decision, what ends up happening, sometimes people then go, this is all too hassle and they sell the property. Um, and so you've just, it's so important to pick a good property manager that picks a good tenant Yes, because you're just asking for these, you know, it's, years it's, of it, trouble. It's, it's very much a life cycle and you go through the life cycle regularly, you know, with each tenancy. Mm. Um, and as an investor, you're going through that life cycle time and time again. And yep. so you want that to be a positive experience as you're going through that cycle, not not a difficult experience. So um, what we try to do at Let's Rent is we try to make it easier for the tenant as well as making it less painless, uh, less painful for the landlord. So mm. arrears is a great example of that because if you don't manage your arrears, you will have greater arrears. Mm. It's, it's, it, it, yes. it's a given, right? Yeah. So we do look at our arrears every day, but if we have a very large proportion of our tenants on direct debit so that they – uh, they have the benefit of paying their rent on time and they don't need to think about it. So, <laughs> Or if you don't follow me up, right, if I'm, I'm seven days late yeah. and I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, I forgot to pay rent last month. Oh, wow, well, someone got a call and them contacted me. Mm. Next month comes around. Oh, and you, well, get, you get to 10 days and you tonight. go, you get to 10 days, you still haven't heard from the agent. So clearly it's not a priority. It's not a priority and it's not a so, good sign though, is it? So you, It's a really bad sign and it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's about... It's about protecting that relationship so that you set the expectations and you actually, um, your, your, ex, your actions are, are backing that up. So, for example, if the tenant, um, their direct debit fails, our tenants get a, an email that day that it fails saying that we're going to debit the, pro- the account again the next day. So you need to make sure the money is there. And we, we do have what we call serial late payers and we know who they are. But at this point in time, I think the maximum I have uh, is 11 days. One tenant is 11 days. Now we have the tribunal. knocking on the door yet? or? Well, we've got tribunal on Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so I've, already, I've already put in train that termination applied to tribunal and he is a serial late payer. But he does look after the property and he does have a dog. Yeah. So the question is, not all landlords would ask for that tenant to be evicted because he paid his rent. He pays mm. his rent late. So each landlord... As long as he always keeps paying it, I guess, they would probably think, you know? Well, it depends on the landlord is what yeah. I'm saying. Mm. Our landlord has had enough. Right. He does He does not want to be thinking about whether or not the rent is paid each month. Which is fair enough. Which is fair. And he's, the tenant's been there for nearly a year now. So we've, we've limped through it because the market wasn't really great. Mm. So we, we waited. He probably knew that as well, though. Who The, the guy ten- with the dog. Oh, I, look, his communication skills are... Fairly yeah. <laughs> limited. Okay. Ter- like he never responds to us right. unless we send a termination notice, and so we've we've done that before. It's nice to see he's got a dog and you rented to him, which is. I thought that's, you'd like that. That's, 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 <laughs> that's, I love that little uh, thing. But I mean, so let's say this: we've all talked about bad tenants, but when you get a good tenant, mm. things are great, right? Like as an investor, like the rent's there on time. You know, they don't complain about, you know, little things. They well, actually, may... you want them to complain. You actually not complain. Uh, but you inform. Want them to Perhaps bring... inform. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like as a landlord, I mean, you, I'm sure you've sacked some landlords 
you know, because you've got to attend to the things in your property. Correct. I do. I, li- I, well, I shouldn't say I like sacking them. I don't like sacking no. them, but I will sack a landlord who won't do maintenance because it's it's not fair on the tenant. No. And it's um, it obviously that relationship with the tenant is damaged by that particular situation. So um, we we really want our properties well maintained, and so you know we are very open to tenants reporting repairs and maintenance to us. No, it's a good thing from an owner's point of view. You mm. you, you don't want to leak un Absolutely not. Do you know no, what I mean? Well, so true, you actually yeah. do you want someone who's house proud enough that they notice something, oh yeah, I better put I better pass that on. Well the the question is if you're doing a routine inspection and you walk in and there's clearly been a leak and it, the ceiling is mouldy, is that a good tenant? Well no, it's not. Mm. So so it's great to talk about good tenants. And I guess um it would be really good to point out what we do consider to be great a great tenant, mm. and that is someone who pays their rent on time, someone who does look after the property, but also shows respect in that relationship. And um, by that I mean if we are doing a routine inspection, make the beds, tidy up, don't leave dishes in the sink. Um, it's very common for us to go into a property and find that kind of untidiness and mess. Mm. And I personally don't think that's a great tenant. Well, it's your time to shine, right? I think so. And can I tell you that landlords who have those types of tenants who really do look after the property well and present it, they will say, look, we could put through a rent increase, but they're such great tenants, we don't want to lose them. So there's a great benefit for tenants there if they're willing to put that effort in. Yeah, it's interesting. So that was going to be my next question was on rent rises, right? So um, I did a post on LinkedIn some time ago, and it was about rent rises and what you should do if you do have a good tenant, should you increase the rent or not? What's kind of Let's Rent's kind of view on that? You know, how do, how do you play it? You know, like you've got someone who's been there for, let's say, a year or two, everything's been smooth sailing, um, and they want to go for another 12 months. What do you do? Do you increase the rent? Let's say the market has gone up and it's not just, you know, they've so they are maybe 10% under what the market rent is. Would you encourage the owner to? Rent up. Well, it's our job to do that. Our job is to check the market and to inform the owner if the market has increased and what sort of increase we would recommend. However, it's not our property and therefore the responses we get from landlords vary quite considerably. Mm. Um, we have one landlord, we just re-rented her property uh, after four years, I think the tenant was there, and every year we recommended a rent increase. And after the first two years of her saying no, I said, look, we really do need to bump it up a little bit. And so we did bump it up a little bit. And then we've just re-rented the property for $50 a week more than what the previous tenant was paying. But she was very insistent that they were were great tenants, which they were, by the way. They Mm. were excellent tenants. And for her, getting an extra $20, $50 a week more was not important. Myself as a landlord, I tend not to push my rent to the highest point because I like consistency of tenancy. Other landlords like the maximum amount of rent that they can achieve. So it's always down to the landlord. Yeah, I guess it's um, a bit of a conflict for property managers though, isn't it really? You know, if you're higher rent, do you get paid more like as a percentage? I know it's not. It, oh. Over a whole portfolio. Yeah, no, it's Over valid. a whole portfolio, if you put everything yeah. up 10%, that's 10% extra income for the business. Uh, it, does, it does all work out. But then there's also releasing fees and you know, new fees and new leases and things like that. It's more security for the business. And do you think that's true? <laughs> well, well, it's a good question. It's a, it's a rather large question, I would say. I yeah. mean, ultimately you must um, be running your business uh, with integrity. 
So if you are increasing rents to increase your income, then that is just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, you just shouldn't be doing it. Because if you think that you need to increase rents or create turnover to increase your revenue, you are not running a good business because you need to be thinking about, you know, what your um, expenses and your profit level is when you're running a business. You can't, um, the, the equation of how much rent goes up does not come into it for me at all or what the turnover is. So it's clearly a very poorly run company if that was what they were doing. Yeah, and have you heard of that happening before where agents are literally just turning over rental stock or releasing fees because it can add up to a bit of a money. You know, you're talking. Yeah, but they, they can actually, when you re-sign a tenant for another 12-month lease at the end of their term, first term, or second term, whatever, then there's a lease renewal fee then anyway. Yeah. And, and a well-run, and, and I do remember the first time because I transferred my properties to Lisa some years back now, and I remember the first time she came to me at the end of, you know, lease. Right, well, you know, I want to re-sign them and this and the da, and I'm like, what? That means, God, that's just a bloody, you know, license to print money. What are you doing? And I was a little cynical. Um, and, I, and, you know, half of me wanted to, you know, hats off, well done, you know, it's a great way to get your revenue up. And half of me was like, what? Uh, and then I sort of took a moment and thought, what's in it for me? And, and there's a lot of uh, security in it for a landlord. And I think there are some other benefits, which I've forgotten now because I just go along with it now. But mm. tell me, I guess it'd be good for the listeners to understand what the benefits are to always have your tenancy in a lease. Yeah. Um, the benefit is that you know how long that tenant will remain. Okay, yes, they may break the lease, but if they break the lease, then they're subjected to charges as a result of that, which protects you. So it also means it comes back to your comment earlier about leases expiring at the right time of year. So for example, if you have a tenant who's um, off a lease, so can give 21 days notice at any time, and uh, they give notice on the 1st of December, and they're going to be vacating on the 22nd. Um, For you to be able to get a tenant in at that time of year is going to be very, very difficult. If the tenant is breaking their agreement, well, they have to pay rent until a new tenancy commences under the mitigation of loss clause. I won't go into that too much because yep. it gets a bit no, technical. That's a good point though, yep. and, <laughs> and also I think what you mentioned there and what you, is that at the time you've got more control as to when the lease is going to end because, you know, in winter the rents are lower yes. than they are, say, now. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the benefits. As, as, as a landlord the majority of landlords want to know how long their tenant is going to remain in the property. And that question of do you want to sign a new lease uh, to the tenant really indicates how long they want to stay for. Yeah, so it's it's also about getting that information. So if they're only willing to sign a three-month lease, then clearly they're not there for the long term. Helps so plan. it does. It helps the landlord plan what the next steps might be. Now maybe you can bust a little myth too because somebody's once said to me, and I'm not sure if this is true or where they even got it from, that landlord insurance doesn't apply if you're out, if you tenants are on month to month. Now, what's that about? Is, well, it, is there anything in that? There is something in that. Uh-huh. Yes. So there are, not all landlord insurance policies are made equal. I'm going to repeat that. They are not equal. Um, I'm not allowed to comment on insurance to clients because I'm not an expert on insurance, but I have processed a lot of insurance claims and I can tell you that the way that some insurers structure their landlord policies is far better than others. So... Uh, we won't say who the good ones are and who the bad ones are, but uh, some insurance policies will not cover you if your tenant is on a rolling lease. 
Wow. There you go. So I, I had sort of half dismissed that as, oh, yeah, whatever. But um, clearly there's something in that. So we might have to do an episode on Yeah, land, and I mean, um, I guess there's also other things is with it's a bad tenant and you want to get them out and you, can't, you go and apply for the insurance. Well, it's too late. You know, if they're missing payments and they've been in arrears in the last six months, that could mean you can't get insurance. So you have to wait till you get your next tenant. So you're well, best you off ha- to get this stuff is prior to actually Correct. getting a tenant and then getting a good policy. Um, you know, so if you're listening now and you've got problems with a tenant, yeah, you go and get insurance, but it's not going to cover you, mm. you know, a lot of the time. Um, so you've got to really, really know what the policy's covering because... Um, and it's not a lot of money in terms no. of protecting your interests because the good insurers, um, as an example, we had to evict a tenant at the beginning of last year and the it was a great policy <laughs> because we suggested it to the client when well, we got the quote for them. Um, but... The excess was $200 and the tenant vacated the property and we didn't know that they'd vacated. We were trying to evict them and they, they there was all sorts of weird stories coming out. So they left the property. Um, they owed about three weeks in rent. They had left some rubbish there. There was a cockroach infestation. Um, the total cost, and there was a little bit of cleaning as well. They had cleaned it though, which was a bit strange. Surprise, yeah. Yeah, that was a surprise. Um, so in all, the, the costs were about $4,000. So we were able to get all of that cost back for the client because we were able to claim the rubbish removal, the cleaning, the cockroach uh, treatment from the bond. And then we claimed, uh, took the rest for the rent, and then we claimed uh, the rent shortfall from the, the insurer, which was paid in three days. And it's tax deductible, right? You know. Yeah, it's policy, about yeah. look, it's about three hundred and eighty dollars. I just yeah. think it's it's worth it. it, even if you look at that particular example. The owner had to pay two hundred dollars, and. Excess. That was so it. Yep. Oh, I would never, <laughs> never not have landlord insurance. No, I wouldn't ever. either. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Lisa, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. This client of ours was renovating his property and it it had been left to decline over the years. So he was coming to us as a new client and he... He said, come in and have a look and tell me what I should do. So I went into the property and I said, so what What are your plans? And he goes, I'm going to put a new kitchen in. I'm going to do the bathroom, repaint everything, sand the floors. I'm like, fantastic. That's exactly what I'd suggest. And I walked in after he'd put all this work into the property and I went, the dishwasher. <laughs> he went, oh, I didn't put one in. I said, well, we're trying to get $1,500 a week for this property. Oh, right. <laughs> and he said, do you think they'll want one? I said, do you, do you have <laughs> Hello. Do you, I said, do you have one at home? And he said, of course I do. I said, well, don't you think a tenant would want one, especially if they're paying $1,500 a week? Well, we started showing the property and, of course, I mean, we could have been unethical, which we were not, by the way, and, and just let people discover that there was no dishwasher, but... You know, we said we said to people, look, they're just letting you know there isn't a dishwasher because, well, because the fact is a tenant's going to move in and have that expectation. Maybe like a kitchen sink. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell a couple of Dumbo yeah. <laughs> stories about myself. I once bought an investment property without an oven. Oh, right. <laughs> and another one without a kitchen sink. But you also got to remember. Obviously not for clients. <laughs> but for myself. <laughs> 
I'm much more diligent with clients. Yeah. I write a whole checklist for clients. Yeah. This is myself. I'm so- Lisa manages both properties. <laughs> um, I could have used those examples. <laughs> yeah, probably Dumbo Veronica. Um, what are they cooking? A f- this is- gas no, fire I've got oven an oven. Something. I bought an oven. Uh, but, but what did they cook the te- in before? Unsurprisingly, the microwave. tenant. No, it was just had a cooktop. Yeah, didn't a cooktop it? and a microwave. Right. All it had. Look, and that particular apartment's in Bondo Beach. Right. You know, so a lot of people just eat out. You know, yeah. and and this is that was your logic at the time. No, well, I tried to, you know, I tried to bluff, knowing full well it was garbage. But the thing is, for me, I didn't. I'm. I wasn't focused on the detail enough myself. Mm. We do for our clients. We have checklists and everything for all that sort of stuff. But for me, because I just cut that little bit out of the, my whole process, I didn't actually follow my my own process. So there's the Dumbo there. Look, at the end of the day, it hasn't been a significant no. issue because, A, I put an oven in that one. But I buy with a view to what I can do to the property down the track. So that's why I'm not really focusing on whether it's got a sink in the right spot. It does have a sink, by the way, the other mm. one. It's got a sink. It's just, it does, it's but just it's just not in the kitchen. The kitchen. Mm. But, but, but do you have sink in kitchen on your checklist now? Because it's, it, was, <laughs> it was such a rare thing that I didn't even notice it. Veronica didn't notice the it. The painter noticed it. Yeah, because he went to wash his brushes out and he went, yes. Yeah, no, 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 you don't have a kitchen sink. Oh, and the classic right. is, and this is the funny thing though, it's a gestalt theory. It's like you fill in the gaps, mm-hmm. you know. So I walked in there, sinks always have kitchen. I mean, kitchens always have sinks, so I didn't even think, check, tick. Um, you know, Sounds like your elephant got you. My <laughs> elephant got me, yeah. And I still haven't renovated that house, but I will one day. I've owned that. T- yeah. uh, I bought that in 2012. Anyway, so let's let's just get right, off that's my dumb anyway. moments. No one needs sinks. Pass. Anyway, my client put the dishwasher in as well yeah. because every, the feedback was that nobody wanted to rent it without a dishwasher mm. at that price point. So get, get it. When you are doing a renovation, get advice from the property uh, manager. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that definitely. That actually has a checklist to make sure that you put a dishwasher in. Yeah, because because what people do is <laughs> Next they – Next to the sink. They, they, what they look to do is they actually look to renovate the property as if they were going to move into it themselves, yeah. which is completely the wrong way to look at it. Although mm. he didn't because he's got a dishwasher and he didn't put one in. True. Problem with bad people with bad taste, though. They don't know they've oh, got bad taste. Oh, yes. So, you know, like it's <laughs> it's pretty hard, right? If you've got a, you know, think you've got an artistic, creative, an interior designer, I know how to make a beautiful house and you've got unique taste, um, it's not going to be what the market wants. How so. many times but that's have an, we seen that? But that's an easy conversation, <laughs> right? Because if you if the client gets you in before they start, beautifying their property, you can, and they tell you what they're going to do, then you can say, well, it's going to make it a lot harder to rent if you do that because people like a blank canvas, don't they? Tenants like their favourite tiles. So you're being diplomatic when you say that. (laughs) I'm telling the truth. I know, but Mm. diplomatically. Lisa's not always diplomatic, just quietly. (gasps) She's... (laughs) And Veronica isn't either. (laughs) Oh, and, and, you know, I don't reward diplomacy. Not, Not if it costs people money because you really need to be a little bit more upfront. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. It's the role of an advisor. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Thank mm. you so much for your time. This Thanks has so been much for having very me. enlightening. I thought we were going to f- mo- mostly focus on uh, vacancy rates, but instead we veered off into a whole bunch of um, topics. As per usual, we covered uh, an amazing gamut. So thank you for sharing your experience with us. Very welcome. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Let's talk about what a would-be investor needs to be thinking about when they're looking at property. So if you have never bought an investment property before, even if you have and you haven't really sort of, you know, had a clear idea about what you're actually doing, 
it's useful to get advice from a property manager in the area in which you're looking to buy. So, you know, go out there, pretend to be a tenant, go to some inspections and I guess just see how they show properties. But start trying to get relationships with local property managers and they will give you that on the ground intel. I mean, Lisa did talk about vacancy rates, for instance, and she also talked about when they're published versus when the data is collected. And so those property managers are understanding what's happening on the ground in those areas. So say you're looking at an apartment as a potential investment. You go through the open house, there's a sales agent there, and they'll have usually out on the table a whole bunch of paraphernalia, including a letter from the property manager within their team, giving you a market estimate for rental. Now, take that with a grain of salt. Okay, you need to go and either do your own research and you can via realestate.com.au and, and domain.com.au and the portals there, you can have a look at sort of rental ads, but it's it's not as easy to get that information as it is when you're looking at sales data. So I would at that point actually go and talk to a couple of other local agents in the area, the property managers, and actually get their advice in terms of the type of property it is, whether they feel that that is an easy property to rent in that area, the type of price point, the type of tenant that it would attract, et cetera, et cetera. You wanting to find out whether this is a property that is appealing to tenants. Now, we talk all the time on the elephant here about buying a property with great capital growth prospects. And that's the number one goal of investing in property. It really really is because you're building for your future wealth. But obviously you want to pay the bills and that's why you need tenants in it, right? And so understanding the type of property that's going to maximise your rental return because it appeals to the most amount of tenants in the area is really important. So get that information from another property manager, not one that works in the same agency as the agent. Now you might also go and talk to one of the property managers in that same agency. I'm not saying don't do it ever, but make sure you don't just rely on them because they are a little biased. Let's face it, they're trying to sell the property. Okay, so that's my tip. Make sure you get to know property managers as well as sales managers when you're looking at buying investment property. Join us next week when we have our very first Q&A episode. We are so thrilled to hear from you all and we love getting your questions. So we've put four quite different questions up for our first episode. We're going to be talking about differences in property growth in the outer areas of Sydney versus the inner areas of Sydney and whether in fact investing out in areas such as Liverpool or Badgerys Creek is going to be a good idea for the long term. We also talk about what to do when your builder goes AWOL with your money. We talk about different ways to invest in property on the share market. And also we talk about what happens if your financial planner comes to you with a really great opportunity in property. So tune in (laughs) and enjoy. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. 
If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.